And I want to welcome all of you once again. For those of you that are joining us right now via Facebook Live, YouTube Live, or you're on Twitter with us, we are glad that you're here. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Baptist Church, and I get to open God's Word with us today. Would you open your Bibles to the book of James? If you brought a Bible with you, uh, open it up to the book of James chapter 4. You can, as always, follow along on on you version, simply go to the more function than events and then open up uh, the Redeemer Baptist Church uh, selection there and you can follow along with all of today's message notes and for those of you that like the analog paper version, we have those as well in your bulletin. We are in the midst of our study of James where, that we've entitled Get Wise. James is the New Testament book of wisdom. It's very similar to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. James is concerned with the idea of how do we live in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is supposed to transform us, and he knows that there are practical realities to that. How do we live life God's way? or with godly wisdom. And last week, we began to see how James is addressing the problem of human speech, the tongue, the way that we talk. And so last week, we saw that godly wisdom requires that we know the power, the problem, the purpose, and the purchaser of the tongue. So if you didn't listen to last week's message, today's message is a companion to that. So I would encourage you to go to our uh, website or go to Facebook and listen again to last week's message if you haven't, or listen to it for the first time if you haven't yet. This week, we're going to see how godly wisdom helps us understand three realities that affect our speech. Specifically, we're going to see how uh, that, that our, we have a pride issue, and pride has a voice. Pride is a vice, but pride has also been defeated by a victor. So, pride's voice, pride's vice, and pride's victor. Let's read from James chapter 4. I'll pick up reading in chapter, in, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, read through verse 17, and then I'm going to read two verses out of chapter 5, verses 9 and 12, which are on the same theme. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
and then from chapter 5, verses 9, and then verse 12. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. As we think about the idea that we have a speech problem, and you might remember last week we talked about the idea that when the Bible talks about the tongue, it's not just talking about the physical words that we say, but it's all the ways that we can communicate. Parents, you know that your children can communicate a bad attitude without saying a word, right? And kids know that parents can communicate a bad attitude without saying a word, right? We all know that that is true. So you, it's, it's not just what you actually say. It's not like the Bible saying, well, as long as you keep your mouth shut, it's okay to have a bad attitude and communicate non-verbally, right? It's not okay to, to be polite and smile at someone and then go tweet or post something on Facebook that's nasty about them, right? There's lots of ways that we communicate. So when the Bible's talking about the tongue and the problem of the tongue, and when James is talking about it, he's talking about all the ways that we communicate with one another in God's world. And so as we looked at the problem of speech last week, I referred to the fact that James is going to zero in on a particular aspect of the problem that we have in our communication, and that is specifically that we have a pride problem that is universal to the human race. The pride has a voice, and that voice is your voice. It's my voice. And that very often we may not think of ourselves as prideful people, but James is going to come and attack our assumptions about ourselves. So if you go to James chapter 3, verse 5, where we were studying last week, James says, the tongue is a small member, or it's an organ of your body, right? And, and relative to our arms or our feet or whatever, our tongues are, are you know, very small. And he says, the tongue is a small organ of your body, yet it boasts of great things. And everything James has to say about speech and our communication can be unpacked from that point on. He says, listen, the problem with your speech is pride. It's about you boasting. So we want to recognize that pride has a voice. It has a sound to it. Uh, the psalmist is saying the same things. The, the authors in Proverbs say the same thing. Psalms chapter 12 verses 3 and 4 say this. The tongue makes great boasts. It talks about many things over which it has no control. It goes on to say, those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. I'm going to win by what I say. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Now, in the last few years, we have seen politicians take that statement that I just read to a new level. Dominance is culturally popular right now. The humble speech of politicians of yesteryear like Abraham Lincoln 
and George Washington is gone. Today we talk about how our team's going to win, how our nation is the greatest. And everybody doesn't even flinch. We all go, yeah, that's right, woo! We make great boasts all the time with our speech. And we don't even recognize that that's the sound of pride. Pride flows out of our mouths from a stream. And that stream is the human heart. We saw this last week. Jesus brings this point out over and over again. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, you brood of vipers. What do vipers do? You ever seen a viper? When Tracy and I were living as missionaries overseas, one day I saw a group of men running down this hill right behind, into our backyard. And they were chasing something, and it was very big, very green, and very slithery. And it was a pit viper. And it was coming down the hill behind our house. And and they were chasing it with machetes and sticks because it's a pit viper and it's deadly. And so this group of men are chasing it down the hillside and they're killing it and everything else. And I got to see this great big viper with its great big fangs. Okay, Vipers kill with their mouths. When Jesus says, you brood of vipers, he's saying, you've got a mouth problem. Your mouth is full of poison. He goes on to say, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, just let that sit there for just a second. If pride has a sound to it, and that sound is the words that come out of our mouth, and Jesus says what has come out of our mouth flows from our hearts, where's the pride problem? It's in our hearts, right? None of us likes to think of ourselves as particularly prideful people, yet Jesus says the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So, whenever people are saying things boastfully, pridefully, one, listen to them. They're telling you something about themselves. Don't dismiss it. For example, if a politician were to boast of sexually assaulting many women and then have other people say out loud, oh, that's just locker room talk. No, it isn't. Believe the person. Believe what that's telling you about their character. That's the sound of pride. But what if the mouth is reflecting what's in the heart and the heart is just a stream and there's a source that, that, con- that converges there with the heart. And that's what's in our minds. See, pride has a source to it and it has to do with what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about God and what we believe about the world we live in. Think about how easy it is for you and me to enter into any conversation, any relationship, and immediately we start evaluating, is the person dressed better than me? 
or worse than me? Is this person smarter than me or not as smart as me? Is this person as talented as me or not as talented as me? They have more money than me or less money than me? We immediately begin trying to process and think through how am I in relationship to that person? We see somebody do something evil that we can't understand. They struggle with the temptation that we don't have. And we immediately go to condemnation and self-righteousness and pride. Well, I've never done that. I can't believe somebody would do that. Right? What do you believe about yourself in that moment? And what do you believe about God? And what do you believe about the world and other people? It's so easy to believe that other people are in more need of grace, are more sinful than you. It's so easy to believe that God is is so far away and you are so dominant in your life. Folks, Pride's source is ungodly, demonic wisdom. James says this right in the middle of talking about speech. James 3.15, he says there's a wisdom that doesn't come down from God above. He said already that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. There's a godly wisdom that comes down from above. He says, but there is a wisdom that doesn't come down from God, but there's a wisdom that is earthly, and in that case he's not talking about it being part of the physical globe on which we are on, the, 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 the planet that we are part of. He's saying the world... There is a wisdom that is worldly. There is a wisdom that is unspiritual. It's not about a relationship with God. It's natural wisdom. It's mankind's common sense, which Theo hates that phrase. Uh, Let me just point out, uh, uncommon sense is very common, right? (laughs) We all think we're exceptional. And everybody else is a little bit stupid. What's that speaking? Pride. James goes on to say that wisdom that, com- that doesn't come down from above, it's demonic in nature. It comes from Satan. Now, we should not be shocked by this. The Bible begins with all of us created in the image of God, our mouths created to praise and glorify God and to announce His great beauties and magnificences, right? But come to Genesis 3... And a demon shows up in the garden. His name is Satan. And he has a pride problem. We know this from so many scriptural allusions. And the first thing he does is go right at mankind's pride. And he tempts them to believe that they know better than God's word so that we can doubt Him. He teaches them to not trust that God has good intentions for them, that that there's something they know is better than God and that they want it, and that there will be no consequences for their choices. God can't actually back up what He says. That's pride. Do you hear that floating throughout that? Over and over again, you'll find in Scripture passages that talk about human pride that overlay with the pride of Satan. Passages like this one from Isaiah 14. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This passage applies to the king of Babylon. It applies to Satan. And guess what? It applies to you and me. Oh, we say, oh, I'm I'm not like that. Well, John would remind you, if you say you're not like that, you're lying. Because all of us have this same issue. So, pride has a voice. It's what comes out of our mouths. But pride is a vice. It's not something good. And we have to be reminded of that for some reason. We have confused so often the idea of having a healthy confidence in God-given abilities with the reality of the human pride problem. Pride is a vice because it's always comparative. Think about it this way. James is going to point out how we have three specific areas that he's going to highlight of of how pride affects us. We have a pride over other people. So James 4.11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. It's James 4.11, right? We have a, he's going to, in this discussion of pride and our speech problem, he says, don't talk bad about other people. There do not seem to be any exceptions there, except if they're really, really bad, or I really don't like them, or they were really not nice to me. He says, don't speak evil against one another. Pride gets revealed through slander, through a condemning a, a set of words, a, a condemnation, or even in how we complain about people. James goes on to say in verse 11 of chapter 4, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In verse 9 of chapter 5, he goes on to say, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. So don't speak against each other. Don't speak in condemnation over other people. And don't complain about each other. Because all of that flows from a spirit of pride. We hold other people to God's standards or man-made rules or legalism. But We don't typically hold ourselves to that same standard. We find areas where we don't really struggle, and we highlight that, ignore our own weaknesses. So, you may not be a person who has struggled ever, for example, with gambling as a problem. So it's easy to go, well, I can't believe people just don't have any self-restraint. You know, they got a gambling problem or an alcohol problem. And so it's easy to look at people that use alcohol to numb their pain and condemn it. And there are churches that will build you up into a frenzy in the business of condemning people who are outside the church while ignoring massive justice problems inside the church. You can ignore the reality of sexual abuse of a child in your own church and condemn people who have a glass of wine. 
Folks, that's man-made religion. And it's what is the default mode of each of our hearts. James says in verse 11, he goes on, If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. What's he saying? If you're busy running around trying to see if everybody else is meeting God's rules, you know what you're not doing? You're not looking at yourself. (laughs) You're not looking in the mirror. You're busy running around condemning everybody else. Trying to determine, well, I don't know. I just, you know, I don't know if they've got the right doctrine. I don't know if they've got the, the right way of living. So you're busy focused on other people, but you're not busy doing the law. You're not applying it to your own life. It's so easy. Somebody comes to you and they hurt you with something that they say. And you forget how many times you've said hurtful things to other people. Book of Ecclesiastes, another Old Testament book of wisdom, specifically says, hey, listen, if you happen to hear somebody that you think is your subordinate complaining about you, ignore it. Because you know you yourself have done much complaining in your life. We are often in the business of having this condemning spirit, and Jesus forbids us to have a condemning spirit. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it's one place. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, Imagine the judgment throne of God and you standing before God uh, when, you, when he takes you into his presence. And, and, and all he does is pull out a tape recorder. Now, those of you who remember what tape recorders are? Okay, this is before you had digital devices, these little spools of magnetic tape. Never mind, I'm not going to explain it. So, all right, tape recorders. Francis Schaeffer said, you pull out a tape recorder, a recording, and, the, and God just presses the playback button. And it's all the words that you have said about other people and how they have failed you. Would you live up to that standard? Now that's just a a word picture. But Jesus is saying something very similar here. He says, listen, I'm going to condemn you by your own words. I'm going to bring you to a place where you see that you need my grace. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, he goes on, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. And church, I just want to challenge you, when you hear people speaking who claim to follow Jesus, and they spend the majority of their time condemning unbelievers and talking about how awesome they are, or condemning the other political party, but never talking about how bad their own is. Stop listening. They're lying to you. And it's not healthy for your soul. It's toxic. It's ungodly. Now, let me caveat this just a little bit. Within the church, we've been instructed 
to practice discerning discipline and restoration. It means that within the church, we see sin when it is actually clear and has happened, and we don't ignore it under the pretension that we're not judging other people. Many of you know, because many of you have been to our, our, our meetings, you've come to the Southern Baptist Convention. I'll give you an example of this. The weirdest thing that happened in our convention in the last few years is that we ignored the reality of visible sexual abuse within our churches and said, well, I don't want to condemn that, brother. I don't know. I didn't have all the information. And at the same time, condemned the world in so many different ways. Now, what if I were to tell you that while we are not to have a condemning spirit, we are called to have a discerning spirit and to be aware of our own sin within our own communities. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says this. Paul writing to the Corinthian church says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, he's going to go on to write to the Corinthian church in a second letter that the goal of all church discipline is restoration, to right relationship with God. The reason you discipline someone in your church is to bring them back into right relationship with God and right relationship with God's people. It's not to condemn them, but to restore them. So we, with that caveat in mind, let's also realize that we are called to recognize that God alone is the ultimate judge. And any attempts to usurp his unique role means that we put ourselves in the place of being the ultimate judge. Go to James 4.12. James says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Years ago, I was in an argument, an intense argument, with a pastor, and there was another pastor in the room. Things got kind of heated. The other pastor and I were both very upset. There was a pastor outside of our church. And we were trying to plan a community ministry event, believe it or not. He's hot, I'm hot, harsh words were said, at least for ministers. <laughs> and... Uh, and I said something that to this day I deeply regret. I impugned my brother's motives. I acted like I knew what the intentions of his heart were. And praise God, he had the, he had the, the grace to correct me and challenge me on that. And so did the other pastor. And, and I, you know, I'm just like, I'm so sorry, I was wrong. You are right. I should not have done that. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we run around condemning one another with our words is assuming that we know what the intentions of somebody else's heart are. And we don't. We don't. Most of us can't figure out our own motivations most of the time. And we're mixed bags of motivations, right? 
Paul's going to write to the Corinthians right before he has them act in discipline against someone who's obviously sexually immoral and unrepentant. He says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. In other words... Let God be the decider of what somebody's intentions are. Finally, just one more thing I want to say about this because we've got to move on and talk about another vice. But, but when we have this judgmental spirit and we speak out of it, we are forgetting our own weaknesses and sins. James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? But just, let that, just let that sit for just a second. You can, the best position that you could find would be, well, I don't do that. But what if they point out 92 things that you do do that are sinful, ugly, selfish, pride-filled, unbelieving? Right? Who are you to run around condemning? Do you really think you are that much better than everybody else? That's why James has already reminded the church, we all stumble in many, many ways. And he also has reminded us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You may not be an adulterer or a murderer, but you might have stolen someone else's glory. You might have cheated on your taxes. You might have been very unkind with your speech. You might have given yourself over to food to comfort yourself instead of booze or drugs. There are a million ways that you and I sin. And James says, you got to remember who you are. Okay, so there's pride over other people. But James says that's not the only kind of pride over other things. He says there's pride over life itself and the God who creates life. Uh, go to verse 16. He says this, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. There's the, the, the pride that's at the core of this. You, your boasting flows from your pride. All such boasting is evil. But if you back up, you see what he's talking about, right? You read that verse in verse 16. Look at what he's talking about in all the verses that immediately precede that. He's saying you've got to recognize life's uncertainty, so go to verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And he says, That's boasting. How many of us make plans but never recognize the reality that we're actually not in charge of those plans? I could tell you, well, I'm planning on making this for dinner for my family tonight. And that I might, that I might be sincere and have that as a sincere intention. But I might get a phone call telling me my mother's passed away this afternoon. You think that might disrupt my dinner plans? Folks, over and over again, we have to recognize the reality that life is uncertain and we aren't masters over it. We are placed in a world that is under the control of God. James points out that life is temporary, that it has a temporality to it. 
that all of us die. Every institution, organization, and human being goes down at some point. So James 4.14, he says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're a mist. Anybody see the pictures this week of the Webb telescope that got published in the news? You realize that the images, that the first image that they released was light from 13 and a half billion years ago. Let that just sink into your brain for a second. 13 and a half billion years ago, Jesus is playing with the stars, hanging out with five galaxies that we can see that are so far out there, it took 13 and a half billion years for the light from them to get to us. And he goes, hey, guys, watch this. I'm going to make you blue, you red, you amazing, and we're going to do this. And 13 and a half billion years from now, there's going to be a human being who looks at this image. Do you think that should humble us? Long before we came, long after we are gone, Jesus is carrying out his purposes and his work in his world and his universe for his glory. And James says, don't act like you've got life under your control with what you say. Don't act like God is submissive to you rather than sovereign over all things. He goes on, verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If you read the scripture references that I put in your notes there, you'll see over and over again, Paul the Apostle, for example, saying, Hey, I've got plans to come to you, church in Rome, if the Lord wills. The Apostle saying, We've got plans to do this or that, if the Lord wills. Because they recognize this. They weren't in control. So often, even in how we verbalize our planning is really about us trying to actualize our own reality and make it happen. And it comes from human pride. Finally, James points out there's a pride over truth itself. We think we can manipulate reality. And again, I know I'm hitting a lot of politics buttons today, but folks, there are literal guys out there who say we can distort the reality of what the world believes by simply repeating a lie enough. If we tell a falsehood enough times... People will believe it because it fits the desires of their own heart. It tickles their itching ears. That's not a new tactic. It's a satanic, old, demonic tactic. And that's what James is trying to address in verse 12 of chapter 5. Above all, isn't this interesting? James has said all kinds of important things. He comes to verse 12 of chapter 5 and he says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So James is saying this is something very, very important. Very important. wonder where he got that from. Probably his brother. Right? Now, let's be clear here. 
some things James is not talking about. Maybe you grew up like I did, and I was told that there was a class of words called swear words. Uh, That's a terrible linguistic use because to swear is to take an oath to something, and cursing at people or using profanity, ugly gutter language, is not a swear word. A swear word is when you say, I vow, I promise, I will. Okay? James is not talking about using dirty words. There are other places in the Bible say don't use dirty words. Okay? But that's not what he's talking about. Here's something else he's not talking about. He's not talking about lawful oaths. Because the Old Testament is full of lawful oaths. In fact, God commanded that priests take certain kinds of oaths, that there be oaths and vows that are good. When husbands and wives take vows to each other or people make vows to their church, those are lawful oaths. They are statements of sincere intent of action. I have to renew my apartment lease. I have to sign and say, I intend to pay my bill to my apartment. There's nothing ungodly about that, all right? It's not generally forbidden. Jesus points out the Old Testament use of the law in Matthew 5, 33. He says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He says, now, that's, a, that's an Old Testament truth. Do what God has, what you've promised to God. He says, but the problem is you haven't gone far enough with it. Instead, you've decided that you can use oaths and promises to hide what your real intentions and actions are. It's called manipulative oath-taking. It's like when a politician says, I will serve the Constitution and faithfully defend and protect this country, and they have no intention of doing that. They intend to line their pocketbook. They're taking an oath, but they have a false intention. Or when a spouse says, I intend to be faithful to this one all the days of my life, but they have no intention of doing that whatsoever. Right? And James says the problem is deeper yet because Jesus said the problem is deeper yet. The problem is that you are trying to manipulate what other people think by adding on and layering in words. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 34, he's talking about unwise or insincere speech and speech that's designed to convince or persuade or control other people. He says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is for his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In other words, he says, you don't control any of those things. Don't act like you do. We aren't the final arbiters of life's ordinary and extraordinary outcomes. Jesus goes on to say, you don't take an oath even by your head. He says, you can't decide which of your hairs is gray or not. <laughs> it's like, so what makes you think you're in control? You know? Saw a pastor friend this week. First time I've seen him in about a year. He has a great big beard. Like half his beard is like white. We were all giving him a hard time, right? But it's not, I mean, you know, unless he goes and buys a bunch of hair dye, and, you know, he can't control that. And even then, the hair dye is just, what, faking it, right? And a lot of us try and do that with our words. 
We try to fake things over other people. So James is simply saying this, the same thing that Jesus did, which is that simple, plain, sincere speech is the opposite of pride. When you just say simply, yes, I plan to be there. I intend to do this. We are letting our yes be yes and our no be no. And James says, if you try and do something more than that, whatever comes out of your mouth is going to be evil in its intention. It's going to come from a place of pride. Okay, so we've talked some about pride's voice. We've talked some about pride's vice and the areas that James uses as examples. There's more. We've got to come to the reality, though, that pride doesn't win. And praise God. Because at this point, if I'm reading all of these things, I'm going... Man, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I can probably come up with an instance where I have done this repeatedly this last week. Maybe even today. But pride has a victor. And James wants you to see that as well. Look at James 4.12. It was right there. You may not have seen it. It's easy to skip past. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. And that sounds heavy. But then he goes on to say, he who is able... To save. He who is able to save and destroy. Well, James wants us to recognize that God alone is the ultimate judge. He's made that point repeatedly. He says it again in, J- in James chapter 5, verse 9, when he says, Brothers, don't grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, there is a judge. He's standing at the door. Right? He's repeating Old Testament wisdom and truth there. Uh, Same thing that Hannah in her prayer to God cried out in 1 Samuel 2, 3. She says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. There's a judge. And pride is sin. It's against God first. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin, says the book of Proverbs. And God, brothers and sisters, hates pride. Did you hear what I just said? He hates it. You know, I've talked to many pastors over the years, and we've commiserated over the fact there are many things we can do to get ourselves fired. Rarely will a pastor be fired for being prideful. And yet Scripture says that pride is an abomination. It's something that God hates. In Proverbs chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 is one place. I, wisdom, God Himself speaking, personifying Himself as wisdom says, I dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. I hate. What do you think God hates? Pride. And pride that overflows with arrogant speech. And Jesus has already made it clear that we're going to be held account for our speech, right? Remember this from Matthew 12, 36. Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Do you feel that? 
That's the part of the sentence where James says, there's one who can destroy. (laughs) That's the judge. But what if the judge is also the one who can save? (laughs) What if he's the one who can not only pay the penalty for all the pride-filled speech that we've given, but deliver us from pride's control? What if He can reconcile us to God? What if there was a person who never spoke a pride-filled word their entire lives? And then they said, I'm going to take the place of all the people who've spoken nothing but pride all of their lives. Well, that's Jesus. And that's exactly what we find in Scripture. We may are called to reject our self-saving speech. The idea that we can make ourselves right with God is just another form of pride. It's what the psalmist is talking about when he says, There are those that scoff and speak with malice. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. We can't save ourselves before God, but Jesus never sinned. In fact, He never sinned with His mouth, ever. 1 Peter chapter 2 addresses that. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Listen to what, what he just said. Jesus never spoke a word that wasn't completely true or honest. When people spoke terrible things about him, he never spoke a single word of reviling back. And when he was suffering, he who had all of the power of the universe never threatened a person. Well, that Jesus bore the penalty for our pride, our pride-filled speech. He defeated pride's power. That's why Peter goes on to say, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He took our penalty in our place. And then he goes on to say, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a freedom that comes because Jesus broke sin's power and pride's power over the human race. We don't have to live under the domination of pride's power. We can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and become like Jesus more and more by His grace. And Jesus goes on to restore us into right relationship with God the Father. Peter says, You were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. James gets to the same place as Peter. He says it a little bit differently, but go to James chapter 4, verses 6 and 10. And you'll see that he's talking about the same reality. Right before he talks about speech, he says, there's a God who gives you more grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. He sent his son to live the life you ought to live, to die the atoning death that you should have died, to raise you so that you can walk in eternal life and freedom in God's power. He says, therefore, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. The only way you and I get made right with the Holy God is not by listing off with our mouths all the ways that we have done really great and right things. It's by crying out 
like the tax collector in the temple. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we humble ourselves, we get God's grace. Verse 10, James goes on to say, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He does the exalting. He picks you up. So the invitation today is simply this. Ask yourself this week, where has the voice of pride been coming through your lips? Where have you been ignoring the vice of pride in your life? And where have you forgotten that pride can and has been defeated and God's inviting you into a relationship that leads you to victory and freedom through His Son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak those truths into each of us. Oh, Father God, grant now that you would, by your grace, as we humble ourselves before you, remind us of the ways that we have sinned. Speak to us the ways that we have acted in ways that are... are sin-filled and pride-filled about ourselves. We come to you confessing the many ways that we have acted in need of your grace, like we don't need your grace when we do. And we ask God that you would speak to us about the areas of our lives where we've been ignoring the voice of pride in our speech. And we confess that we want that to be different. We ask God that you remind us of the greatness of your son's victory, the hope that we have in the cross, the joyous good news we have through your son's perfect life. And that when we humble ourselves, we don't need to add anything to, we don't need to change anything. We can, in fact, glorify you in all that we have been called to. Now, as we go to your table, speak these truths to us in tangible and real ways. In Jesus' name, amen.